All right, it is Sunday, May 9th, 2021. Welcome once again. If you missed the introduction, I hope you are well and I hope you are flourishing, if anything, and thriving in your life. And if you're not, um, hopefully you get out of that. <laughs> so we'll be praying for you. Um, today, we're looking at the 11th chapter of the book of Judges as we continue our sermon series on the book of Judges. We're coming to our ninth judge already. So let's turn to the 11th chapter in the book of Judges and read together verses 1 28 so judges 11 verses 1 to 28 now bear with the text today uh it's going to be very easy to just lose focus as you're reading it i guarantee you're going to be like whoa what's going on and all these names and all these places uh but try to focus and try to like really understand comprehend uh the narrative that we're reading okay so just uh, it is a dialogue so just be weary of that uh, let's read it together. Judges 11, verses 1 to 28. I'll read, and you can follow along in your Bible. This is what the Word of God reads. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. It came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight the, with the sons of Ammon, and become the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us, surely we will do as you have said. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to, kings, uh, to the kings of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? The king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon as far as, far as the Jabbok and the Jordan, therefore return them peaceably now. But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon, and they said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt and Israel, went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the kings of Ed king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and they camped beyond the Arnon, but they did not enter the territory of Moab. For the Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers to, king, to Sihon, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sion gathered all his people and camped in Jahaz and fought with Israel. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok, and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. 
Since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? Do you not possess what Kamash, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aurora and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. Amen. This is an Old Testament version of getting ghosted, right? <laughs> like completely ghosted by uh, the, son, king of, the sons of the kings of Ammon. Anyways, uh, today we are reading this text and there's a lot to unpackage here. So uh, let's get straight into it. But before we do so, let's pray today. Uh, a lot to pray for, of course, uh, happening in the world. Um, images and visuals coming out with catastrophes happening all across the world. Um, but let's focus our and centralize our prayers on a couple things. Number one, our unreached people group of the day. They come from Uzbekistan. Our church used to actually go to mission projects to Kazakhstan, which is a neighboring country to Uzbekistan. And the Stan nations were, of course, part of the Soviet Union. Um, and when it crumbled, they became... They retain their own territories, and these people, of course, have connection with the Korean people as well. So um, it's a very unique uh, region on Earth. Uh, but we're praying for the people group called, and I'm going to butcher this, Karakalpak of Uzbekistan. There are about 731,000 of these people, and none are Christian. They're all Muslim. And so we want to pray for their salvation, and we want to pray that they would come to know God, that their hearts would be opened, and the gospel would be preached to them. So we're praying for the Karakalpak of Uzbekistan. Uh, we're also praying, of course, today's Mother's Day. And um, whether, I don't know how you go about handling this day. I don't know how you, and in Korea, in Asia, but we call it like uh, Parents' Day, right? And so we celebrate those who raised us and gave birth to us and uh, took care of us as we grew up. And so we want to obviously honor our parents as the scriptures teach us. But we also want to remember those people, as I said in the opening prayer, people who don't have mothers uh, to celebrate um, and who don't have like that blessing and we want to pray for them as well for solace in them but i also really want to pray for the women of faith in our community to be great mothers of faith in the future so let's pray together and um, we'll begin today's sermon let's pray god we thank you so much for the book of judges we thank you for this 11th chapter teaching us of jephthah and his message and his discourse uh, with uh, the people of ammon and uh, their Lord, there's just so much here that uh, we'd like to share. And we ask that the Spirit would speak to us um, through your word and reveal truths to us that are to be maintained and um, hopefully uh, cemented in our hearts and minds. God, we also pray for the Kara Kalpak of Uzbekistan. And we pray, Lord God, for their salvation, for they do not know you. They are lost in this idolatry of Islam. And we just pray, God, um, the missionaries and Christians and means that you have ordained uh, we'll go about to bring the gospel to these people, that their hearts will be open to the truth, and that they would come to know you as Savior and Lord. We pray for their salvation, God. We also pray for mothers all over the world today uh, who are being celebrated. We pray for our own mothers uh, that we're able to uh, adorn today and, and celebrate and honor um, and just thank them in gratitude for... <laughs> It's weird to call it service, but really uh, just their dedication, their heart and love for us always. There are also people, Lord, who are mourning 
because they don't have moms they don't have they're not in situations that are what we would deem nuclear or normal by any standard and so we just pray god that if there are people who are, who are hurting out there who are missing moms um we just pray for healing in their hearts and peace in their hearts uh and we pray for mending of any broken relationships between mothers and children uh, we also, Father, pray for our our women uh, in our community, in our church community, that when they become mothers, that they would be honorable, God-fearing mothers uh, who would be women of faith in their household, um, both being a good example to their children as well as, well as being a great companion and partner uh, to their husbands. So, Father, we pray for them. We honor you and lift you. We ask, oh Lord, once again, your word to speak to us. All this we pray in your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, um, in this 11th chapter, we are uh, dealing with, I think, what is a very interesting exchange of dialogue between Jephthah and um, the Ammonites. And so uh, our sermon is entitled, Rejected Savior. Rejected Savior. Um, so let's get into it. Back in grade 10, the 10th grade, this was a long time ago for me, there was a girl that I liked. In fact, I was infatuated with her. I was... In fact, I can confidently say that she was like my first love in my life. In fact, I can even say that I think I loved her at like first sight. Like literally like first sight just fell in love. And I couldn't stop thinking about her. I'm pretty sure hormones had a very big of like, like part of this. And my entire life, my whole life at that time revolved around trying to get to know her and trying to get her to know me. And I was just infatuated with this idea and infatuated with this person. Of course, these were pre-smartphone times. These were MSN times, MSN Messenger times. So, you know, we were furiously on our computers, on MSN Messenger, and just scheming away. And I changed. I, I, I confidently say that. I think I changed the course of my life for this girl because she was everything, right? Everything that I was thinking about uh, to me at the time, and nothing else mattered, right? There's, you know the story, you know the story, but... There's a bunch of stuff that I did that was really stupid <laughs> now that I look back on it. But uh, here's the kicker. So she had a brother who was my age. So she was a year younger, and then she had an older brother by one year who was my age. He was what we would call, by any measure, like a, like a geek, like a nerd, right? Um, a little bit bullied, if you will. You know, he was classically, like at that time, these were sort of the parameters of a nerd. Nowadays, I think it's cool to, to be into this stuff. Uh, but back in the days, he was like into like things like anime and like computer games and like Yu-Gi-Oh cards and like stuff like that right and this is all stuff that I think modern like kids think is like really cool uh, but back in the days it was like uncool if you will <laughs> anyways wait this kind of sounds like my brother I'm just kidding anyways he was my ghetto like he was my gateway to this girl so this this friend of or this brother of hers was my gateway to getting to know this girl right it was the only only gateway really here's the problem though I didn't exactly get along with this kid, right? So in our ninth grade, I didn't really get along with him. To be honest, he was really annoying. He was really, really annoying. And in grade nine, I sort of kind of just ignored him, like shunned him, didn't really like give him any attention. I just kind of disregarded him, brushed him aside, if you will. I didn't treat him very well. I didn't like bully him by any measure, but I certainly didn't give him any kind of affection, right? So lo and behold, 10th grade comes, fall in love with this girl, and this kid becomes sort of my key, right? What a dilemma, right? So what do you think I did? Well, I had to suck it up, right? I amended or I I don't I don't know if there was any mending necessary, but anyways, I started building a relationship with this person. I started befriending this person. At first it was malicious. Of course it was malicious. I was young, I was foolish, I was in love. 
And so I was using this kid, right, to get to know this girl, right, obviously. And that was at first, just to get to know her. But in the end, I really started to enjoy his company. I started to really engage with him and, and like hanging out with him. And so this person who I once rejected, disregarded, became a friend of mine, right? Now today in the opening 11 verses, we have the introduction to the ninth judge, Jephthah. The man who was a valiant warrior, but unfortunately the son of a harlot. A harlot was basically, uh, like we, we dealt with this with Abimelech, right? He was uh, born through an unfaithful um, conception, right? So his dad, Gilead, had a mistress, and then that was Jephthah's mother, okay? And so unfortunately, he was born through these unfaithful means, right? And so that's sort of like the premise of his rejection, right? And so because he was a son born from a woman out of wedlock, uh, he was rejected by his brothers in fear of this. And this is sort of what all commentators and historians agree on. Likelihood, the reason why the brothers were so malicious against him and rejected him is because they were afraid. Back then, what was the big deal? Inheritance, right? So you have an inheritance from Gilead who was clearly wealthy, who had a, who had a pretty good, uh, sizable family and wealth. And these brothers these legitimate brothers, if you will, were afraid that this illegitimate brother would stake claim to some of that inheritance, right? And so, of course, politics and, and finance becomes an issue here. And uh, they kick him out, and they just send him away to Tob, right? And so he leaves, probably unwillingly, but he leaves anyway, and um, he's just rejected by them, right? So he's rejected by his own brethren. He didn't do anything wrong himself. He just happened to be born that way right but then he's immediately reached out to in fear of the Ammonite attack so as soon as uh, there's oppression and there's possible attack against them these Gileadites these brothers of his return to him and say you're the best warrior we have we need you right uh, we cannot win without you and you know if it was me I would laugh at them and be like you're, you're dead <laughs> right like uh, but thankfully Jephthah is not I so a once rejected brother becomes a necessary companion and a leader at that. They had to suck it up, right? These brothers who once rejected their own brother had to suck it up. They had to mend their relationship with him and accept the reality for the sake of survival, right? So keep that in mind. That's sort of the framework of the teaching lesson we're going to look at. Uh, but we're going to look at a couple other things before we get into, I think, what is the main point for us today. But what, I want to break down Jephthah's message to the Ammonites, right? So if you look at verses um, verses 12 to 13, there's an initial discourse where letters are exchanged. So Jephthah has become the leader of the Gileadites, so he takes charge and he goes, all right, Ammon, what's your deal? What do you want with us? Why, do you, why are you doing this, right? And they respond. And the sons of the king of Ammon respond and they say, the land you're in is our land. Give it back peaceably or we're going to take it. Right? And that's basically what happens, and it sets, a, sets the whole stage for Jephthah's message. So let's look at Jephthah's message, and I break it down into four categories, or four parts, if you will. The first is a historical argument, where he clarifies the history. And the second, there's a theological element, or argument. And so he breaks down what God did, right? And then there's a theological rhetoric, right? The ending of his argument, or the ending of his message, a lot of it is just rhetorical questioning. And it implies something. So there's a theological rhetoric, 
And then finally, there's a historical rhetoric. So look, let's look at those four things and it'll help us to give us uh, a firm sort of grasp on the sort of the meat of the text, right? So the historical argument is found in verses 14 to 20. It's the biggest part. And in this part, basically Jephthah says, no, 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 no. We did not take this land from you. Like, first of all, it's not your land. And secondly, we didn't take it from you, right? It was never your land. So there's no reason for us to have to give it back. So he clarifies the history for them. So he teaches history to them. So Jephthah responds to the king of the king of the sons or the sons of the king of Ammon and their claim that Israel stole land from the Ammonites, um, beginning with a history lesson. So he begins with history lessons. This is his lesson. He says, Jephthah clarifies the narrative in detail for Ammon. So let me clarify for you, because again, if you read it on your own, it, there's a tendency to just read and be like, I don't know what's going on. So let me try to put it into the vernacular for us. Hundreds of years ago, Israel came out of Egypt and arrived at a place called Kadesh, a region called Kadesh. They wanted to pass through uh, what was at the time Edom and Moab, but their, but their request to the kings of these lands to pass through that land was denied. So they were denied access. They passed around thus Edom, so they walked around Edom instead, even though they could have saved a lot of time going through Edom. They were denied, so they respected their decision, and they go around Edom, and they arrive at the border of Moab, but they did not trespass into that territory. Now, Moab at the time was Ammonite territory, right? So, so keep that in mind. Israel then asks a different king of a different region, uh, in this case, Sihon, if they could pass through his land, but they didn't trust Israel. This king did not trust Israel. So instead of just saying, no, you can't go through, he feels threatened by Israel, and so their presence, uh, because it threatens him, he actually attacks them and they go into war. And so what happens at this time is Yahweh delivers Israel in battle against this king of Sion and gives him gives Israel the land that, this, that they are disputing right now. So land that they are disputing was never Ammonite territory. And because the Ammonites were also uh, um, inhabitants and, and rulers over, uh, over the land of... Uh, Moab, <laughs> uh, they did not, there was no reason for these people at this moment in their conversation with Jephthah to claim you stole our land. This was never their land. It was never their land. Israel never had intention to do so. And Israel never instigated any of this. They didn't want to take this land. This land was so happened to be gifted to them by God because this king decided to attack God's people, right? So Jephthah's historical argument is basically this then. We sum it up. When was this land yours? <laughs> That's his argument. When in history was this land even yours to claim? Secondly, we never wanted this land. You make it sound like we like went after you and went after your land and we have to give it back to you. We just wanted to pass through. But we were attacked and we just happened to win. Right? So we won it. Even if it was your land, you attacked us. And we won it fair and square. So even if that was the case, you wouldn't have any claim. But that isn't even the case. So on what grounds, historically, what right do you have to call this land yours and thus demand a return of it? That's his argument. Then we go into verse 21 to 22. And we have the theological argument. The theological argument is this. Uh, it comes from Israel and Jephthah's perspective um, on this land. And the perspective was 
that it was not only obtained through victory in battle, but more importantly, by the hand of God. Right? So, yes, Sion attacked us, we won it. But at the end of the day, Israel views this as a gift from God, that God granted deliverance and victory over Sion, right? So that God granted them that land. This is nothing more than thus. So that's their theological argument, or that's Jephthah's theological argument. So he, he grounds his argument on, his, you know, on accurate history, and then he grounds it on accurate theology. That God is the one, yes, of course, like all of this happened, but historically we look back and we realize this is God's gift to us. Right? And how can you claim otherwise? And then he has a, following that theological argument in verses 23 to 24, he has a theological rhetoric on that premise. Now, rhetoric, of course, in the art of debate is this, and Paul uses this a lot. It's like, you know, what say you, right? It's a questioning. It's a rhetorical questioning to imply an argument, right? And so here's, here's Jephthah's rhetorical argument on the premise of the theology that's just been presented, that God has gifted Israel this land, that it wasn't land that they went and took or that they maliciously took from the Ammonites, which was never their land anyway. This was a gift from God. So in verses 23-24, the rhetorical questioning begins, and it begins on the grounds of the theological argument that has been presented. The argument goes something like this. You have a God, don't you? Right? You know what it means, right, to have a god and have a god gift you things. What's your god's name? Oh, it, it's it's Kamash, right? That one. Now, of course, I'm going to get into this, but Jephthah doesn't actually believe Kamash is a god. He says, he asks his question in this way. Doesn't Kamash grant you victory in battle? And doesn't he allow you to obtain foreign land as well? You believe that, don't you? That when you obtain this land as a gift from Kamash and you give offerings and you have your worship sacrifices to him? Well, just like you, we have a God that we worship. His name happens to be Yahweh, just so happens to be the one true God and the only God. But anyways, well, he grants us land too, <laughs> time to time, right? And in this case, he gave us this land to rest in. Now, what makes then your God's gifts more deserving than the gifts that our God gives us. Would you go against the will of your God? And that's his theological argument. He works on the grounds of what they believe. Jephthah's critics here, there's two groups of critics against Jephthah here, okay? Number one, Jephthah's main critics point out here that Kamash is not actually the god of the Ammonites, but rather the god of Moab. So Jephthah's just confused. <laughs> he's, he's got his theology wrong here. But here's Barry Webb, and he clarifies this for us. What is clear from the content of Jephthah's argument as a whole, however, is that he recognizes his opponent, the Ammonites, as legitimate rulers of both Ammon and Moab. Thus, to his opponent's charge that Israel took away my land, Jephthah replies that it took away neither the land of Moab nor the land of the Ammonites. So what's the argument here? So Barry Webb is clarifying this. Jephthah understood that the Ammonites were the rightful rulers of Moab as well, and the, and the god of, the, of Moab was Kamash. So he's identifying one of the gods, a part of the land that's being disputed right along the border that they are at, and he's basically saying, uh, this God that happens to be God of Moab, and I recognize this is your land, and you're claiming that this is your land, and all of this stuff, we didn't take any of this land against your will. So that's 
I hope that clarifies that Jephthah definitely doesn't have his gods mixed up. The second group of critics against Jephthah will argue this. More critics will point to Jephthah's rhetoric as placing other gods on the same level as Yahweh. Does he believe Kamash is on equal grounding as Yahweh? Read verse 27 and you can see that Jephthah clearly sees Yahweh as the only judge, the one true judge, thus the one true God of the universe. If he believed they were on equal footing, he would have said, okay, let Yahweh and Kamash judge us. But he identifies Lord, the Lord alone, um, the, the Yahweh himself, right? His rhetoric is intended, however, to argue against the Ammonites by using their own worldview, their own theological worldview, against them this is a this is really quite a modern technique of debate it's quite clever really i'll give you an example of a, a way that christians can use this okay like this type of rhetoric i don't mean to use this as like a weapon against like non-believers or anything but just a very simple rhetoric that you can use against for example an atheist this is one that i commonly use and i find it very amusing when i engage with atheists i say what would be the single piece of evidence that would completely convince you that God is, that God exists, right? And they would say something like, well, you know, God appeared before me, I believe him. If God showed me himself, I believe him. If Jesus appeared, I believe him. If Jesus appeared in the sky and mixed up all the clouds and did something miraculous, I believe him. If, you know, if I drop this object and he stops it from touching the ground, then I'll believe him. Stuff like that, right? Just, just crazy miracle, like crazy stuff like that. And I say, that's exactly the stuff you deny. Every time a Christian tells you the Spirit moved us, that God spoke to us, that God's Word is teaching us, that He's performing miracles in our lives by allowing us to experience the supernatural and the things that we cannot explain, the things that we are experiencing on a daily, as faithful believers, we're recognizing these things to be of God and the origin of God, you deny it. Why? Because you say, well, that's not scientific. That's not true. That's not objective. That's not reality. That's fake. That's false. You're making it up. That's a hallucination. You're just dreaming these things. You're misinterpreting phenomena as being godly. But what you're seeking as evidence of God's existence is phenomena. So you, can, you see how you can turn around a worldview against its own premise if it's faulty? That's exactly what I think Jephthah is doing. He's saying, I'm going to just use your ideology against you. So he's not putting... Yahweh and Kamash on Saint equal footing. The psalmist says stuff like that too, right? Psalms articulates like he is the God of, uh, he is the king of all gods, right? One of the psalms reads that. Doesn't mean that he's a king of literal gods. It just means he is the one true king, one true God. And all of these things are just idols. They're fakes. It's a powerful rhetoric for Jephthah to do this. The final thing is historical rhetoric. Verses 25 to 26. Jephthah closes with a final rhetoric based on the historical account that he has clarified for the Ammonites. Just as he turned their beliefs on them, he then turns their history on them. He's turned their theology on them, now he's turning their history on them. His argument is simply this. Remember King Balak, the guy that you really like, the guy that you really respect? Well, we can certainly recall him in the Bible from Numbers 22 where he wanted to drive out Israel based on their potential threat, but not on any indication or motivation that he viewed the land that the Israelites were inhabiting as his own. And this is a great king of Ammon, right? So then, king of Ammon, are you greater than Balak? Are you greater than him? 
Because he certainly did not see this land that you were claiming as his. And what about the last 300 years of saying and doing nothing or anything about our occupation in this land? Or any of these surrounding territories? You did nothing for 300 years. How come you all of a sudden bring this up? Where is this stemming from? What stirs you now? Seems a little odd, don't you think? And so Jephthah closes with a statement of judgment. The one true God, let him judge righteously that which is true. And he's basically stamping it and saying, hey, if God is our witness and he will judge us, I'm, putting, I'm willing to put my words and my account in the hands of God. Even the best arguments are disregarded. Here we see perhaps the perfect image of our humanity. Simple disregard or rejection. The king of Ammon just simply chose to say, meh, I don't care. And next week we'll look at the follow-up to that. He says, I still want that land. <laughs> I'll make up history. I'll, I'll do anything. I'll counter my theology. I want that land. Stark reminder of our own sinful attitude. Historical argument. History of faith stands and defends itself when you know it clearly. What's happened in your past? What are the testimonies you have? Theological argument. Paul would say in Romans that men are without excuse when it comes to reality of God. He also reads in Romans 1, or writes in Romans 1, for his laws are written on the hearts of all mankind. God preserves for us also his own word and continues to speak into millions of lives today. God has given you faith, hasn't he? He's gifted that to you, just like Israel has gifted that land. Theological rhetoric. So based on all God has done, is doing and will do, what can you say? Look at your life. And yes, maybe you don't feel God all the time. And maybe you don't feel like he's there all the time. But look at the moments you've had knowing he certainly was. What do you say to that? Do you disregard it? Will you ignore what he has done in your life up to this point? We are, of course, a very consumeristic society. And we're very consumer-minded. Uh, and so it's always, what have you done for me lately? Attitude. Rather than, what have you already done for me? Brothers and sisters, the only thing that we ever will, like, if the one thing, one thing God had to do was send his son, die on the cross, and, and resurrect again, that's all we need. He doesn't need to do anything else. Everything else in your life is just a cherry on top. It's icing on the cake. That stuff that you are able to experience that brings you joy and gratitude and all of these things, you know, finishing school, getting a nice job, finding a wonderful husband or wife, having beautiful children, having whatever, all of these things. These are just the absolute tip of bonuses. Like, it's just a bonus of bonuses. All you need is Christ on that cross dying for your sins and then rising from the grave again. That's the greatest thing. That's, that's theological rhetoric. And then we have the historical rhetoric. Are you saying you know more? You can see more? You can understand more than any other human ever are you saying that your questions and concerns have never come up in any human mind prior to your existence so your mind and your questions warrant absolute special and unique attention you're so novel to this world so new that there's no reasonable response to your brilliant mind's questions in all of human and christian history if christianity was strictly an intellectual battle like it was strictly an intellectual issue the smartest people in the world let's say the hundred smartest people in the world 
world would all be non-believers. And all hundred dumbest people in the world would all be Christians. But that's not the case. When we, when we survey the hundred smartest people in the world, there's a mixture of Christians, a mixture of unbelievers, and a mixture of other faiths. So it's not an intellectual battle. But too many times our faith is simply thrust into that arena of intellect. And many times I find Christians are extremely lazy. Lazy to investigate. Lazy to really scour the depths of Christian history and the wealth of everything, the treasures that our previous believers have left with us. More importantly, what God has left with us. People come to me all the time. I don't know if I could trust the Bible. I don't know if the authorship is correct. I don't know, like, if I don't know if like this stuff was like put together properly. How do I? How can I trust the people that put it together? How can I trust like, you know, that that someone didn't make a mistake in the manuscript copying and blah 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 blah. I'm like, you sh- you question the authorship and the dating and the construction of your of this text, right? Well, who's the author of your science textbook? Who's the author of your psychology textbook? Who's the author of your engineering textbook or your nursing textbook? And if there's three authors, name one. And even if you can name them, what did they study? What school did they graduate from? How do you know they have the credentials to teach you on the topic that they have written on? What do you trust? You trust the publisher and you trust that the school is selling you something. 150 bucks, 300 bucks, $500 textbook. Must be right. Give me a break. If you're going to question the Bible on its authorship and its dating and its construction, you better do that with every single book on your shelf. It's a lazy argument. And even when you investigate the authorship, and even when you investigate the historicity of Scripture and the validity of Scripture as a historical text, you will find it will stand firmly, firmly on historical accuracy and grammar. You're just too lazy to look into it. We're too narrow-minded to see things with clarity, too willing to accept the narrative of the world we live in. Why? People hate God. What have you done so well in your life that disqualifies all that God has done for you? I don't understand what grounds you speak on. And so we are like the sons of the king of Ammon. We just brush it aside and say, I disregard it too easy so what can we glean from this text what can we glean from it we see yet again that a rejected nobody can be used by god we've learned this before that god can and will use just about any sort of human to fulfill his will we particularly see this in the book of judges it is not the vessel that is of importance but the divine being behind that vessel we also learn that we can stand firm in the faith on the grounds of historical evidence, theological evidence, historical argument, and theological argument. Jephthah's message to the Ammonites, a reminder of what had happened, who God is, what they had done, and what God has, had done stands as a reminder for us today as well. It may not be the evidence that you are seeking, but it is the evidence that we are given, and it is sufficient for our faith. But the most important point to me is the opening point I made in my introduction. We see in the first 11 verses what we saw in chapter 10 last week. You see, verses 1 to 11 are essentially a parallel parable of chapter 10. 
where Israel turned from God only to desperately seek him and cry out to him in their time of need. And both God and Jephthah respond and remind their rejectors of their previous attitude towards them. They are not keen to deliver their audience in light of their rejection. They ultimately do due to their compassion. This is no coincidence that these two stories are written back to back by the author of Judges. They are meant to teach and remind us of an important truth. That as human beings, we reject the only one who can save us every single day. Isaiah 53, 3-5 reads, He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness, and like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And if you want a New Testament evidence, we can turn to Acts 3, 13-15, where Peter preaches to the crowd. And he, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you handed over and you disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted instead, but put to death the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, this, it is this. Both the Old and New Testaments attest to a rejected Savior. Rejected by man, led to death, but died for the sake of many. You see, like Yahweh in chapter 10 and like Jephthah in chapter 11, we are like the Israelites and the Gileadites. We reject Jesus only later to realize we need to turn to him in desperate need. We need to eat some humble crow, if you will. We are like the Ammonites. We hear the message and we disregard it. But even so, the gift of grace is free to those whom it is given. But this does not have to be our stance nor our case. I pray for you today that what we have learned will yield your mind and heart to Jesus, that his message will be piercing to you, and that instead of living in disregard of the gospel, we will live in regard for it, for his message of salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. No longer a rejected Savior in your life and in mine, but one that is wholly received, praised, and followed. Let's pray.